exciting to be here with you and to be worshiping the Lord and hearing his word together. Um, this isn't gonna come as a surprise to some of you, but I, I hate winter. I really don't like it. And there's a reason why this prairie kid moved to uh, the West Coast 15 years ago and never looked back. And I've, I've shared this with you before, but when I, uh, was, I was interviewing at a church in Richmond and I got picked up from the airport and I'm driving down Bridgeport Road and I saw a palm tree. And I realized in that moment, there's a place in Canada with a palm tree. That's where I'm living. And I knew, I knew God was calling me here, but the palm tree kind of really pushed me over the edge. You know, that was the, that was the clincher. But one thing that you can never escape from in Canada, even when there are palm trees, is the short, dark winter days where it's 3.30, 4 o'clock and the sun has set already and it's just gross, you know? Like this is a, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's close. And, uh, and, and one thing I'm noticing just recently is that things have changed, you know? That it's now, it's 5.30, 6 o'clock and it's, it's still light out. And, and I didn't really notice the change, but all of a sudden you look back and you realize there's been this slow, imp- you're like, is this the first time you've ever lived? Like, is this the first year you've ever lived? But you notice there's this slow, imperceptible, gradual kind of change, which is great. But my favorite day is the day that daylight savings time kicks in. Because on that day, it's the, it's the quantum leap. It's the huge overnight change. It's now, now it's the sun setting at 6.30, 7 o'clock. You know, you really feel like something has happened. And I, I think that's what growth is like in, in our lives oftentimes. That, that in terms of maturity, it's, it's a lot of times this slow, gradual, almost imperceptible change. And sometimes we feel like we're actually going backwards instead of forwards. But it's this, it's this slow change. And, and then once in a while, there's an event that turns everything upside down, that, that causes this quantum leap, an overnight change. And Sarah mentioned a couple of those in her testimony with the, her missions trip to Mexico or, or the, the summer camp that she went to. But there are these, these moments that, that kind of all of a sudden force everything way forward. And uh, we saw that last week with the Ethiopian eunuch. This was a guy who, who uh, if you weren't with us, he, he desired to know who God was and he was inching forward in his life. But then one day he met Philip and Philip introduced him to Jesus in the scriptures and in that moment, the eunuch became a new creation. He was, he was born anew, he got baptized. It was this quantum leap. And the same kind of thing happens with a, a very different man named Saul in the passage we're gonna look at today. So let's pray and then we're gonna get into Acts chapter nine. So Jesus, we ask, oh, that in this time now, simply that you would speak to us and that you would move in our hearts. And Lord, I, I know that, that as, um, as the one who is sharing these words, that I, that I am broken and that I am weak and that on, on their own these words will accomplish very little. But if your Holy Spirit moves in this time and if you apply these words and if you, if you speak to our hearts, Lord, then, then real change can take place. And so I just invite you, Holy Spirit, to move in this space, to move in our hearts, uh, as you will. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 9, uh, verses 1 to 2, we'll just start there. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters in the synagogues, in Dam- asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and that was how the early Christian movement was described, it was a way of thinking, a way of living, a way of believing, a way of acting, who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So we're reading here about a guy named Saul. 
And uh, we want to give them a little bit of a, a biographical sketch here at the beginning. So if, if you're new to this, this, all this whole church thing, you might not know that Saul is the same guy that we're reading here as, as this, the famous St. Paul. If you've ever come across a St. Paul's Cathedral or St. Paul's Hospital, like in downtown Vancouver, this, this is the guy it's named after. Now, some of you might also think that, that Saul was his name before he met Jesus, and then he became a Christian and, and got a new name. It's actually uh, the children's Bible story book I've been reading with my kids. Uh, that's the way they put this story. They're like, oh, Paul met Jesus, and, and he got a new name. And, and my daughter has, has, has been doing this long enough uh, to know that, you know, she's like, that's not how it really happened. I'm like, that's my girl, you know. Uh, and because uh, it's not how it happened. He's still called Saul after his conversion for quite a while, and he only becomes known as Paul when he starts going to Greek-speaking areas, when, when he goes to the Gentile world. So Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. He's always both of those things. Saul equals Paul. It's not going to change your life, but just to be clear on that. Now, Saul was, was born in a city called Tarsus, which was a kind of sophisticated metropolitan city in what is modern-day Turkey. That's where he was born, but he spent his formative years in Jerusalem, sitting at the feet of the famous rabbi Gamaliel. And, and so he had two very different experiences growing up. You think about it, part of his life was spent as, as a cultural minority in a place where not very many people shared his faith, who had very different worldviews. And then part of his life was spent in Jerusalem, where every aspect of life was oriented around the shared faith in, in Israel's God. So two very different kinds of things. And, and that, that shaped him for years to come. But it was especially in Jerusalem, it seems, that, that he thrived, that he flourished. Uh, he was a bit of a prodigy. As the Germans say, he was a wunderkind. That's one of three German words I know. So there you go. He, he was, well, this is, how he, this is how he describes himself in Galatians 1. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Here's Saul saying, I, I, was, I was climbing the ranks. People looked up to him. They admired him for his, for his knowledge, for his understanding. He, he became a leader early on. Another passage where he kind of lists off his credentials is Philippians 3. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, I know that's a lot of loaded terms, but let's just look at one in particular here. He describes himself as a Pharisee. And I've, I've, I've explained this before, but, but Pharisees were one sect, one group within first century Judaism. And like all the other Jews, they were very distressed because the, 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 whatever, the land of Israel, the land of Judea had been, had been occupied, was being occupied by the Roman Empire. The Romans were imposing their will on the Israelites. Now, we, we maybe used to think that we didn't live in a world where that kind of thing happened anymore. You know that that's kind of the first century world or, or early 20th century. And, and what we found out, and to me, I, I will admit, it kind of came as a shock to me that we still live in a world where large superpowers can just 
impose their will, invade a country. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a couple moments, a, a little bit more. But that's what had happened in the, in the first century world. And so all of, all of these groups of, of Jews are like, what do we do about this? And, and the Pharisees were a group that believed that, well, they longed, they longed for restoration. They longed for freedom. They longed for God to break in and establish his kingdom. And they believed that would happen if the Jews were faithful to God's law, if they were rigorously devoted to the Old Testament law. That would kind of prompt God to, to come and, and to, to kick out the Romans and reestablish Israel in its glory. So, so that, was, that was Saul's heart. That was his passion in life. That was his zeal. His zeal was to see Israel purified and the kingdom of God coming. This is what drove him. And he had good biblical precedents for this kind of zeal. Here's one of them. In Numbers 25, we get this story. Uh, so you've had the, the ten plagues and the Red Sea splitting in half. The Israelites go through. They're in the wilderness between Egypt and, and the Promised Land. And while they're there, they come across a group of people called the Moabites. And some of the Mo Moabite women apparently are, are, are attractive. And uh, they seduce the Israelite men. Uh, some of them start sleeping together. Uh, and, and then the Israelite men start worshiping the Moabite gods and idols. So you've got sexual immorality, you've got idolatry, you've got the whole thing. It's not good. God says to Moses, Israel is going to face punishment for this. And, and so uh, Moses and the other leaders of Israel are, are weeping in front of the entrance to the tabernacle because of this. And as they're weeping, uh, this Israelite man saunters on past with a Moabite woman on his arm. And in broad daylight, just brings her into his tent. And Phineas, who is the grandson of Aaron, the great, the, the, the high priest, uh, Phineas is so filled with anger. He can't believe this brazen act that he grabs a spear. He barges into the man's tent and drives the spear right through the man into the woman's belly, kills them both. And this is what we read in, in verse 11. God says, Phineas has turned my anger away from the Israelites since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. See, God is zealous for his people to know him, to follow him, to worship him, and, and he honors those who are zealous in that way too. And, and this is what Saul, this is what Saul kind of breathed. This is the air he breathed, the water that he drank. He, he was living in the tradition of Phineas. He was zealous. You heard him in Galatians 1 and Philippians 3. He talks about how zealous he was. And the target of his zeal, the recipient of his zeal, were fellow Jews, just like, I mean, Phineas's zeal was against those Jews who had been unfaithful. This is Saul's zeal as well. He's zealous about these fellow Jewish brothers and sisters who were worshiping uh, a man, following this, not, not being devoted to the law or the traditions that had been handed down to them, but being devoted to a man. And that was blasphemy for Saul. For them to be worshiping, for fellow Jews to be worshiping a man, and not only a man, but one who had been declared by Israel's own spiritual leaders to be guilty and to be hung on a cross. And, and Saul knew the words of Deuteronomy 21, which say that anyone who is hung on a pole or a tree, and a cross, let's be honest, is, is pretty close to both those things. Anyone hung on a pole or a tree is under God's curse. So not only 
was he a man? But, but, but he, was, he was the opposite of the Messiah. He was under God's curse. And it must have been so deeply frustrating for Saul to see his fellow Jews not get this really basic, obvious fact. And not only that, but Saul had heard Stephen preach. We, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew who uh, preached persuasively about Jesus and, and showed how all of these core elements in Jewish faith had all been pointing to Jesus. How the, the temple, for example, was, was pointing to the way that Jesus is the fullness of God in, in bodily form here on earth. You don't have to go to a, a building made by human hands to find God's presence. You can just go to, to Jesus and to all of those who trust in him. Stephen showed how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. It all points to him, but Saul couldn't hear any of that. All Saul heard was this guy, Stephen, undermining all of his efforts, all the efforts of the other Pharisees to bring about the kingdom of God. All he heard was, was heresy and blasphemy and dishonor. And so, yeah, he was filled with zeal, and he decided to do something about it. Now, before I tell you what he did, and some of you already know, but before we get there, I do, I do want to make one thing clear. that this, The point of this is, is not that there is no such thing as truth. There is truth, and God has revealed it in his word. And it's good to be zealous for the truth and, and zealous for God's glory. And Paul says in Galatians 4 that it is fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good. So I, I don't want you to take from this that you should be lukewarm, that you should be unmoved by evil or wrong thinking about God. I don't want you to take from this that you, you should not hold fast to biblical truth. But Saul's issue was that his understanding of the scriptures was more informed by human tradition than by the Holy Spirit. And his problem even more was that his understanding of Jesus was more informed by human standards and by the Holy Spirit, and that's when zeal will land you in trouble. And before it landed Saul in trouble, it landed a, a lot of followers of Jesus in trouble. In Acts 7 and 8, uh, we've looked at this the last couple of weeks, Saul uh, seems to lead the charge against Stephen and, and the stoning, the, the martyrdom of Stephen. He, he's there, he's approving the whole thing. He smiles on it. He, he thinks this is good, right? Because he's like doing the Phineas thing again. He's, he thinks this is a good thing. And, and in fact, it emboldens him. It, it, it provokes him. It, it spurs him on to do even more. And so here we read about how it's not enough to round up the believers in Jerusalem. He's gonna, he's gonna travel 200 kilometers on his own initiative, because he's not going to let them escape his clutches that easily. They're going to run to Damascus. He's coming after them. We read about his state of mind in verse 1. He's breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. You, you get the picture here. Saul is like a raging bull, and the matador's red flag thing is, is the name of Christ. He is full of venom and hatred and violence and single-mindedly determined to wipe this movement of Jesus' followers out. He is a hurricane headed straight into the direction of wherever Christians have fled. I know we're not supposed to be afraid of any people in this world. I know we're not, we're not supposed to fear, but I, I think one of the scariest things in this world are people, usually they're men, 
who are so full of, of anger, not always, but, all, but, but anyways, people who are so full of anger and, and hatred that rational thought seems to have gone out the window, right? And they're just so determined to destroy. It's not hard to paint Vladimir Putin with that brush in the last, uh, in the last little bit. You know, I think a lot of us have imagined ourselves in the shoes of a Ukrainian and just knowing that here is this, this powerful man invested with so much authority who's coming and, and he wants to destroy your country. He, he's, he's coming for you and how scary that would feel. Now, some of you have perhaps felt that same kind of thing towards even our own government and, and our prime minister because of various decisions that have been made that seem to just be targeted at ideological opponents. Some of you are from Hong Kong and you've, you've experienced some of this towards Xi Jinping and, and the Communist Party of China. And, and others of you just have individuals in your life who play that kind of role. And, and no matter how much you try to persuade them or speak to them, they, they, are, they seem to be determined to come at you. And, and that can feel scary. And, and that's a little bit of what it was like to be a Christian in the first century and know that Saul of Tarsus was coming your direction with all the authority of the priesthood in Jerusalem. But that was all about to change. In one of uh, probably the most famous scenes in history, I, I think certainly the most famous conversion in, in church history. Uh, we still have this in, in our kind of cultural memory. People talk about a, a Damascus Road experience, right? Even if they've never really read the Bible, there's still this we still use this term to denote like a kind of a, a, a 180. And so here it is straight from the scriptures, verses 3 to 6. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I want to make one thing really crystal, crystal clear here. We're, we're going to talk about the, the change that takes place in Saul, but let, let's, be, let's be very clear that that change does not come from inside of him. Okay? It, it's not... It's not like a lot of people in our world today talk about how it's like, well, you've got the, you, you know, your, your, your destiny is in your hands. You control your own fate. You have the power within yourself to bring about change. You, you can do anything you put your mind to, blah, 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 insert Disney song title here, blah, 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 right? Like that's, that's the idea. The change in Saul does not come from himself. It doesn't come from inside of him. It comes from someone outside of him. It comes from meeting Jesus. And I, I think there were five things, at least five things, that Saul would have realized very quickly about Jesus in this encounter. And I just want to walk through them uh, kind of piece by piece here. The first thing he would have recognized is that this individual, and he didn't know it was Jesus yet, but that this individual was glorious. So he's on the road to Damascus, and he is stopped dead in his tracks by this blinding light, and he, and he falls down to the ground. But what the text doesn't say, but, uh, but this, this text, but later on we find out is that Saul didn't see a light. It wasn't just like somebody shone a light brightly in his eyes. It was that he saw Jesus himself. 
That's what Ananias says in verse 17. He says, you saw Jesus. Verse 27, Barnabas tells the, the believers in Jerusalem, Saul saw Jesus. It's what, what Paul, as he goes by later, uh, said to, to many of the churches he talked to. He said, I witnessed the resurrected Jesus. I actually saw him. See, Saul didn't see a light. He saw Jesus. And his experience of Jesus was so glorious, so overwhelming, he fell to the ground. Now, there's actually a, another story like this in, in the New Testament. In Revelation 1, uh, the apostle John, who is by now well along in his years, he is on the island of Patmos. He's in prayer, which is probably what some people think Saul was doing as well in, in, in Acts, but he's in, uh, John is in prayer, and he receives this vision, and, and he sees Jesus. And, and he sees Jesus with his eyes like blazing fire and his feet glowing like, like bronze in a furnace, and, he, and he, uh, he hears the voice of Jesus like the sound of many rushing waters, and he sees Jesus holding the stars of the heavens in his hands, and he sees his face shining like the sun in all of its brilliance, which is quite a sight, isn't it? And so John sees Jesus, and he falls to the ground as though dead. See, you might have this image of Jesus in your mind that he is this humble carpenter, maybe a Swedish model with long blonde hair or something. And some of that is true in terms of his incarnation. He was a humble carpenter, son of a carpenter at least. But it's not true in terms of his resurrection and in terms of his ascension. It's not how Paul encountered him. It's not how John encountered him. In his unveiled glory, Jesus right now is, is dazzling. He's, he's brilliant. He is glorious. He is too much for human senses to be able to comprehend or handle. When, when humans come face to face with the glorified Jesus, this is what happens. They fall to the ground. They fall as though dead. Saul would have recognized right away that this individual is unlike anyone he's ever met before. Second thing that Saul would have recognized is that this individual was really deeply connected with certain people on earth. And once he realized it was Jesus, he would have understand some, understood something a bit more, that, that Jesus was so connected to his people on earth that whatever you did to them... You did to him. So this is the question that Jesus asks Saul. He does not ask him, Saul, why are you persecuting innocent people? He doesn't ask him, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? What does he say? He says, why are you persecuting me? It's like, like Saul is actually persecuting Jesus himself. And some of us have been going through, um, we, we've formed these discipleship groups where we're going uh, deep, digging deep into these kind of basic fundamental biblical truths. And uh, in the chapter on the church, the author talks about how a lot of people think of the church as being this organization that is just keeping the memory of a great historical figure alive, which is a very charitable way of thinking about the church. Most people have worse things to say or think about it, but... At a more charitable end, it's, a mem it's an organization keeping the memory of Jesus alive. And the author goes, that's not even close to the reality. And in reality, he says, the church is a divine organism 
mystically fused to the living and reigning Christ who continues to reveal himself in his people. A divine organism, a living organism fused to Christ so that he continues to reveal himself in and through his, his people. That's how close the relationship is, which can be immensely encouraging. If you are being tempted, for example, and you know that you are in Christ, you're not going through this alone, he's been there, you're in him, right? And, and he's, he's, he's encountered this, he's defeated it already. Or if you're encountering slander and persecution and opposition, again, you're not in this alone. You're connected with other believers, part of the same body, but you're connected to Jesus. But it's also a challenge because there are people who think that they can be a follower of Jesus but be disconnected from the church, you know? And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It, it just doesn't work. No matter how much the church has failed to live up to its true identity, and it has oftentimes, and people have been hurt and they've been wounded, and, and we, need to, we need to enter into that, empathize with that. Despite of all of that, it simply doesn't work to fully cut yourself off from the church because when you do that, you're actually cutting yourself off from Christ. What you do to the body, you do to him. If you amputate a member of the church, of the body of Christ, you're, you're, amputating, well, you're, you're amputating a member of Christ. You see what I mean? So Saul would have recognized this, that, that he wasn't just persecuting a rogue band of unfaithful Jews. He was actually persecuting the risen and ascended Messiah. Which leads, this leads to the third thing, that once Saul recognized that it was Jesus, you know, he identifies himself as Jesus, Saul would have recognized, would have realized that Jesus had been risen from the dead. And of course he knew, he knew that the Christians believed that Jesus had been risen from the dead, but for him, it wasn't even in the realm of possibility, Right? There was no category for that. Like, there's no way that one person had been raised from the dead to immortal life in the midst of history. There was just no chance. But in this moment, that whole worldview had come crashing to the ground. And a, and a new one had to, had to take place, had to be formed, where actually, yes, someone has been raised to, to everlasting life in the middle of history. And, and by the way, this is one, I think, of the greatest pieces of evidence for the truth of Christian faith. You think about Saul. He is single-mindedly, determinedly living in one direction, a direction that leads him to go on his own initiative 200 kilometers just to round up and imprison followers of Jesus. He is so devoted to that. He's got all the power with him, right? And all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, he stops and he turns and he runs in the other direction where he is now going around telling everybody that Jesus has been risen from the dead, that he is the glorious king of the universe, and he starts subjecting himself to the same persecution he was dealing out to others. So he gives up all his credibility, all his authority, all his power, and now he's being flogged, he's being beaten, he's being imprisoned. He is, he is facing death for the sake of his testimony. Why? That's the worst career move like ever in the eyes of humans. Why? Because he saw Jesus risen from the dead. You look at that from, from the perspective of the disciples. You've got these guys who are weak and unimpressive 
And they're, they're hiding away behind locked doors after Jesus is crucified because they know that they're next. They know that they're next on the list. And then suddenly, in the blink of an eye, they're out in public with power and boldness telling everybody that Jesus is alive at the cost of their own lives. And not a single one of them recants. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Why does the church, I got one more, I got one more. Why does the church explode in Jerusalem, the city where Jesus was crucified? I mean, why, how could that happen? Anyone could have been like, you fools, the body's right there. Why does the church explode and grow in Jerusalem? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Now you can, now you can do that. There. I, I, think, I think this just makes all the sense in the world. This happens, these people make this drastic change at the cost of their lives because they genuinely witnessed Jesus risen from the dead. Which leads to the fourth thing that Saul would have recognized, and, and that is that Jesus had been vindicated. That the resurrection of Jesus was God's very public proclamation that Jesus was, in fact, the anointed one, the Messiah, the King, and that anyone who is for Jesus is for God, and anyone who is against Jesus is against God. And by the way, that's still true today. No matter how much people want to say that all paths just lead in the same direction and, and that you're okay as long as you believe sincerely, this is still the, the testimony of Jesus. He says that no one comes to the Father except through me. And the resurrection of Jesus is, is God's way of saying, this is the gate. This is the way in. This is my chosen one. This is the way you come to know me is through Jesus. And think about what that would have meant for Saul. Here's a guy who has devoted his whole life in zeal for the Lord, defending the Lord's honor. And in this moment, he realizes that he has actually been working against God. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine what it would be like to have your whole life's efforts in a moment? You realize it has all been not only just for nothing, it's not been in vain, it has actually been in, in direct contradiction to the thing that you wanted to see happen. So for Saul, it's just this kind of like, like he just knows, I, I have been against, I have been against Jesus. And, um, and we'll talk later about how that, that must have just broken him in one sense, but, but ultimately led to his, to, to new life. But in any case, in this moment, he knows Jesus is vindicated. He was, he was on the wrong side. Saul had been on the wrong side of history. You know, we throw these terms around, the right side of history, the wrong side of history. In the, in the eyes of the world, Saul was on the right side of history, right? Because he had, the, the, public, the public polls said, no, these Christians are wacky. You should go after them. He had the authority of the high priest. He, had, he was fighting for a certain kind of justice. He absolutely believed that he was in the right. He had all of that going for him. But in this moment, he realized he was on the wrong side of this. And, and fifth and finally, I think Saul would have recognized in this moment that this Jesus was Lord. And I don't know if he knew right away that Jesus was the Lord, like capital letters. I don't know if he would have realized that Jesus was the fullness of God in bodily form, but I think he recognized that this Jesus had authority and had authority over him. Given everything he had seen, given how glorious he was, resurrected, vindicated, he knew if, if this Jesus tells me to do something, like go to Damascus and wait there for instructions, I should probably do it. Like, okay, yes, yes, I'll do whatever you say. 
This was, this was one of the fundamental claims of Christians in the first century that Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar, but, but Jesus is Lord. And, and, and what that meant was that Jesus has been given, and this is what Jesus told his disciples right before he ascended to the Father in glory. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, which means every human authority, every president and prime minister and dictator and premier and governor and mayor and congressman and member of parliament and, and king and queen and every single human authority is ultimately subordinate to Jesus. And so you might feel anger and frustration and rage at this or that leader because of their corruption, because of the decisions they have made. I get that. But, but Jesus knows and he knows the intricacies of all of that far more than you or I do. And he is going to hold them accountable. They will bow the knee to him. You've got to believe that. And, and to be honest, the best chance that any of those corrupt human authorities have at actually turning and repenting and living differently is if they actually come face to face in some way with their Lord. That's what we have to pray for. That's what we have to be on our knees for. You gotta pray that a man like Vladimir Putin actually comes face to face with his Lord Jesus and knows that he's gonna be held accountable for his actions because Jesus is Lord. The bottom line is that real change, again, real deep change, lasting change, doesn't come from inside of us. It comes from encountering Jesus. It comes from meeting Jesus. Nate and I are, are reading a book right now, and, and uh, this is actually, it's, it's all about how, how Christians grow, and the first chapter is, is all about this, all about having a, a greater vision of who Jesus is. This, is. this is what the author says. He says, one reason you only see modest growth and ongoing sin in your life, if indeed that is the case, is that the Jesus you are following is a junior varsity Jesus an unwittingly reduced Jesus, an unsurprising and predictable Jesus. If you want change in your life, then you need to allow the scriptures to form your vision of Jesus, a, a bigger vision, a more expansive vision of who Jesus is, how glorious he is, how he is reigning, how he is Lord, and so on. Now, I, when I first was preparing for this, uh, this text, I thought we were going to go all the way to verse 19, but it turns out this thing is so epic, so earth-shattering, so, so much to explore here that, that there's no way. Don't worry, I'm not going to keep you here till like 2 o'clock. Do you want to, though? Okay, no, 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 there's no yeses there. All right, so we're just going to go three more verses, verses 7 to 9. I, was, I wonder if you had actually said yes, I wonder what would have happened. Well, now we'll never know. Verses 7 to 9. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but didn't see anyone. See, they, they didn't see anyone, but, I, but Saul did. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Look at the contrast here. Remember who Saul was. He was that raging bull full of self-righteous zeal 
directed at the Lord's disciples. He, he was a man who was admired and respected and, and had all of this authority. You know, he was, he was the prodigy. He was advancing in his years, all of that stuff. And now, and now he is struck blind. He's led by the hand into Damascus. He, he's weak. He is, he is dependent on others. He is, he does, he's so broken that he doesn't eat or drink for three days, which is reminiscent of other figures in the scriptures who are so deeply convicted of sin that they sit in the ashes and they fast and they mourn and they lament. And, and that's where Saul is here at the end of our passage for this morning. And you might go, well, this isn't a fun place to end. You know, like, like bring us... Bring us to something more encouraging and more inspiring where Saul is filled with a new zeal and, and where he's restored and healed. And all of that stuff happens. But you actually have to go through this. You have to stay here for a little bit where Saul comes face to face not only with the glory of Jesus but with the sinfulness and evil in his own life. Where Saul recognizes that he is a far greater sinner than he ever thought. And that he's in far deeper need of salvation than he ever imagined. And, and I, I gotta tell you, that never actually changed for Saul. It, it wasn't like he grew up and was like, well, I wasn't actually that bad. It was okay. It's not like he was like, I was, I was almost there. I just needed a little nudge. I just needed a little bit of help. And, you know, to push me over the edge, like the palm tree in Richmond, right? I just needed a little bit of help. And then I was good. He didn't, say, he didn't think that. Here's what he wrote years later to his friend Timothy. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He said this years and years later. Christ Jesus came in the, into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. See, this, um, this conviction of sin, this deep, deep breaking and humbling and shattering of Saul is what actually led him to become this, this instrument, maybe one of God's greatest instruments to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in the world. It was this that I think filled him every day with awe at the fact that Jesus loved him, filled him with gratitude that he had been saved, not just like helped, not just, it wasn't just that Jesus gave him a good example to follow, but that Jesus had brought him from death to life, had brought him from judgment to redemption. It, was, it filled him with, I, like, put yourself in Saul's shoes every day. You go, I can't believe it. I can't believe that he loves me and gave his life for me. See, we don't like, we don't like self-despair. We don't like admitting our weakness and brokenness. It's something that we are told in pop psychology and Dr. Phil and all of that stuff over and over again. Don't do that. Don't go to that. Get away from that. But what if that's actually, if handled correctly, the way to growth, the way to renewal, the way to change? Um, again, it's crazy. The, the, the book... Nate and I are reading, first chapter is all about this expense, like, like having our vision of Jesus grow, but, but the second chapter is all about self-despair and about how this is actually necessary to see real growth because if you minimize the evil inside of you, you actually put a hard ceiling on, on how much Jesus is able to do within you. And here, here's what he says. He says that the severity of our condition dictates the depth and seriousness of the medicine we know we need. 
And so if you think that all you have is a headache, what do you do? You, you, take, you take a painkiller. You go to bed, you know? But if, if you know that you have brain cancer, if you know that you've got a tumor, then you're going to rush to the hospital. You're going to undergo surgery. You're, you're going to undergo chemotherapy. You're going to take the most drastic measures possible to deal with this because you know this is serious. You know that this is life-threatening. A lot of people in our world today think that all they've got is a headache. And so they think all they need to do is take a painkiller. They look at themselves and compare themselves to other people and they go, well, I'm, I'm actually not doing too bad, right? I'm a pretty nice, civil, kind person. I'm, I'm, I'm actually okay. I just, need a little, I just need a little bit of help here or there. Look at Saul. Saul, in the eyes of others, compared to others, he was zealous, he was righteous, he was faultless. Everyone looked up to him. You ask people, who is the model human being? Who's the model Jew? Saul is right there. Saul of Tarsus, look at him. He, he, was, he was elevated. He was on a pedestal above everybody. But that all, that all changed when he saw Jesus. When he saw what real holiness looks like. When he saw what real glory looks like. When he saw what real goodness looked like. That was the moment when he realized what was inside of him. Do you know that this morning? Because that, that's what changed. That's the first thing that changed for Saul on the road to Damascus before anything else. That was the thing that changed. He saw Jesus, he saw himself, and he recognized how badly he needed salvation. Do you know that this morning? Do you, are, are you still comparing yourself to others? Are you still trying to convince yourself that you're mostly okay? Or, or do you despair of your own ability to save yourself? Do you recognize just how much sin exists in each one of us and how deeply, how desperately you need a savior. Again, it's not a fun place to be necessarily, but it's a good place to be. It's where God does some of his best work. It's, it's, where, he, it's where he fills us with that, that awe at what he's done for us. It's, it's where he fills us with gratitude for how Jesus has loved us and saved us. It's, it's where we learn to stop trusting in our own strength and to lean entirely on the strength of Jesus. Many years later, Paul wrote uh, these words to the Corinthians. He closed with this. He said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And I, I just, I, I would expect and imagine that when Paul wrote those words, he was thinking about what happened to him on the road to Damascus, how he had seen the light of God's glory in the face of Jesus and how he had come to know Jesus. And he says, we have this treasure, the, the knowledge of Jesus, the light of God's glory in our lives. We have this treasure in jars of clay, meaning us, meaning vulnerable, broken, soiled, sinful humans. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. This morning, I want to I want to give you an invitation once again, like we did last week. So the worship team can come up and prayer team will head over to the side. And, and, and here's, here's, here's the invitation. Are you tired of going it on your own? Are you tired of, of leaning on your own strength and feeling 
disappointed again and again and again? Do you recognize your need for salvation? And, and maybe, maybe it's like the first time that you've come to this place, or, or maybe, maybe you realize, you know, you, you, you knew Jesus, and, and yet over time you have leaned more and more on your own strength, and, and you, have, you have stopped trusting in him. You have convinced yourself that you're mostly okay, and this morning you recognize in the light of the glory of God unveiled in Christ that is not the case. We want to invite you to come up during this next song and, and, and pray with one of us here on the side and, and to, to, to confess that, that brokenness, to confess that need for God to once again fill you with his knowledge, with his glory, with his light. So Jesus, thank you for what you did in Saul's heart on the road to Damascus, for what you did in his life, for how you revealed yourself to him and how, Lord, you brought him to that low place, that, that place of, of self-despair, that place of brokenness. And how in the midst of that, Lord, you, you poured out your love on him. You poured out your spirit in him. Lord, you filled him with this, with this treasure, uh, Lord, that would, that would stay with him for the rest of his life. You changed him, Lord, forever. You made him your instrument to proclaim your gospel. And so I pray that for us today. I pray, Lord, that we would come in contact with our brokenness, with our desperate need for you, not comparing ourselves to others, but in the light of your holiness and glory, and that we would be made new, that we would be made into your vessels, into jars of clay that house the greatest treasure this world has ever known. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know more of him and make him known today. We'd love to hear more from you.